This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, 
I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Lindsay C. Shannon. Rachel Jaffe. Mark Friesen. And Cassie L. Spanky. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and support Sleepy if it helps you get a better night's rest. Um, and there's extra perks for donating $5 a month, like all kinds of exclusive readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. But no matter how much you donate, even a dollar, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So if you, too, would like to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com sleepyradio and donate even a dollar a month. Thanks. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, I don't know if you can tell from just listening to the intro of this show, but um, my voice has been pretty much gone this entire week. I've been under the weather, and uh, I've been hoping that I would get a little better so that I can record a brand new story for you. But, alas, it hasn't come back yet. Um, but I'm on the mend. So I'll have a new story for you next week. Um, but tonight, to kick off this Christmas season, this December, I'm going to repost one of our old episodes that is a longtime favorite of many of you, which is Old Christmas by Washington Irving. I'm excited to bring you a lot of new Christmas readings this December. But in the meantime, enjoy this oldie but goodie till my voice gets a little better. Okay, that's enough of me yapping. Now, tonight, Old Christmas by Washington Irving. And now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. There is nothing in England that exercises a more delightful spell over my imagination than the lingerings of the holiday customs and rural games of former times. They recall the pictures my fancy used to draw in the May morning of life, when as yet I only knew the world through books and believed it to be all that poets had painted it. And they bring with them the flavor of those honest days of yore, in which perhaps with equal fallacy, I am apt to think the world was more homebred, social, 
and joyous than at present. I regret to say that they are daily growing more and more faint, being gradually worn away by time, but still more obliterated by modern fashion. They resemble those picturesque morsels of Gothic architecture which we see crumbling in various parts of the country, partly dilapidated by the waste of ages and partly lost in the additions and alterations of latter days. Poetry, however, clings with cherishing fondness about the rural game and holiday revel from which it has derived so many of its themes. As the ivy winds its rich foliage about the gothic arch and moldering tower, gratefully repaying their support by clasping together their tottering remains and, as it were, embalming them in verdure. Of all the old festivals, however, that of Christmas awakens the strongest and most heartfelt associations. There's a tone of solemn and sacred feeling that blends with our conviviality and lifts the spirit to a state of hallowed and elevated enjoyment. The services of the church about this season are extremely tender and inspiring. They dwell on the beautiful story of the origin of our faith and the pastoral scenes that accompanied its announcement. They gradually increase in fervor and pathos during the season of Advent until they break forth in full jubilee on the morning that brought peace and goodwill to men. I do not know a grander effect of music on the moral feelings than to hear the full choir and the pealing organ performing a Christmas anthem in a cathedral and filling every part of the vast pile with triumphant harmony. It is a beautiful arrangement, also, derived from days of yore, that this festival, which commemorates the announcement of the religion of peace and love, has been made the season for gathering together of family connections and drawing closer again those bands of kindred hearts which the cares and pleasures and sorrows of the world are continually operating to cast loose. Of calling back the children of a family who have launched forth in life and wandered wildly asunder, once more to assemble about the paternal hearth, that rallying place of the affections, there to grow young, and loving again among the endearing mementos of childhood. There is something in the very season of the year that gives a charm to the festivity of Christmas. At other times we derive a great portion of our pleasures from the mere beauties of nature. Our feelings sally forth and dissipate themselves over the sunny landscape, and we live abroad and everywhere. The song of the bird, the murmur of the stream, the breathing fragrance of spring, the soft voluptuousness of summer, the golden plomp of autumn, earth with its mantle of refreshing green, and heaven with its deep delicious blue and its cloudy magnificence, all fill us with mute but exquisite delight 
and we revel in the luxury of mere sensation. But in the depth of winter, when nature lies despoiled of every charm and wrapped in her shroud of sheeted snow, we turn for our gratifications to moral sources. The dreariness and desolation of the landscape, the short gloomy days and darksome nights, while they circumscribe our wanderings, shut in our feelings also from rambling abroad and make us more keenly disposed for the pleasures of the social circle. Our thoughts are more concentrated, our friendly sympathies more aroused. We feel more sensibly the charm of each other's society and are brought more closely together by dependence on each other for enjoyment. Heart calleth unto heart, and we draw our pleasures from the deep wells of living kindness which lie in the quiet recesses of our bosoms, and which, when resorted to, furnish forth a pure element of domestic felicity. The pitchy gloom without makes the heart dilate on entering the room filled with the glow and warmth of the evening fire. The ruddy blaze diffuses an artificial summer and sunshine through the room and lights up each countenance into a kindlier welcome. Where does the honest face of hospitality expand into a broader and more cordial smile? Where is the shy glance of love more sweetly eloquent than by the winter fireside? And as the hollow blast of wintry wind rushes from the hall, claps the distant door, whistles about the casement and rumbles down the chimney, what can be more grateful than that feeling of sober and sheltered security with which we look round upon the comfortable chamber in the scene of domestic hilarity. The English, from the great prevalence of rural habits throughout every class of society, have always been fond of those festivals and holidays which agreeably interrupt the stillness of country life. And they were in former days particularly observant of the religious and social rites of Christmas. It is inspiring to read even the dry details which some antiquarians have given of the quaint humors, the burlesque pageants, the complete abandonment to mirth and good fellowship with which this festival was celebrated. It seemed to throw open every door and unlock every heart. They brought the peasant and the peer together and blended all ranks in one warm, generous flow of joy and kindness. The old halls of castles and manor houses resounded with the harp and the Christmas carol, and their ample boards groaned under the weight of hospitality. Even the poorest cottage welcomed the festive season with green decorations of bay and holly, the cheerful fire glanced its rays through the lattice, inviting the passenger to raise the latch and join the gossip knot huddled around the hearth, beguiling the long evening with legendary jokes and oft-told Christmas tales. One of the least pleasing effects of modern refinement is the havoc it has made among the hearty old holiday customs. 
It has completely taken off the sharp touchings and spirited reliefs of these embellishments of life and has worn down society into a more smooth and polished, but certainly a less characteristic surface. Many of the games and ceremonials of Christmas have entirely disappeared, and like the sherry sack of old Falstaff, are become matters of speculation and dispute among commentators. They flourished in times full of spirit and lustihood, when men enjoyed life roughly, but heartily, and vigorously. Times wild and picturesque, which have furnished poetry with its richest materials and the drama with its most attractive variety of characters and manners. The world has become more worldly. There is more of a dissipation and less of enjoyment. Pleasure has expanded into a broader but a shallower stream and has forsaken many of those deep and quiet channels where it floats sweetly through the calm bosom of domestic life. Society has acquired a more enlightened and elegant tone, but it has lost many of its strong local peculiarities, its homebred feelings, its honest fireside delights. The traditionary customs of golden-hearted antiquity its feudal hospitalities and lordly wassailing have passed away with the baronial castles and stately manor houses in which they were celebrated. They comported with the shadowy hall, the great oaken gallery, and the tapestried parlor, but are unfitted to the light showy saloons and gay drawing rooms of the modern villa. Shorn, however, as it is of its ancient and festive honors, Christmas is still a period of delightful excitement in England. It is gratifying to see that home feeling completely aroused which seems to hold so powerful a place in every English bosom. The preparations making on every side for the social board and as again to unite friends and kindred, the presence of good cheer are passing and repassing, those tokens of regard and quickeners of kind feelings. The evergreen is distributed about houses and churches, emblems of peace and gladness. All these have the most pleasing effect in producing fond associations and kindling benevolent sympathies. Even the sound of the weights Rude as may be, their minstrelsy breaks upon the mid-watches of a winter night with the effect of perfect harmony. As I have been awakened by them, in that still and solemn hour, when deep sleep falleth upon a man, I have listened with a hushed delight, and connecting them with sacred and joyous occasion have almost fancied them into another celestial choir, announcing peace and goodwill to mankind. How delightfully the imagination, when wrought upon by these moral influences, turns everything to melody and beauty. The very crowing of the cock, who is sometimes heard in the profound repose of the country, telling the night watches to his feathery dames, was thought by the common people to announce the approach of this sacred festival. Some say 
that ever against the season comes, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. This bird of dawning singeth all night long, and then they say no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome, then no planets strike, no fairy takes, no witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. Amidst the general call to happiness, the bustle of the spirit and stir of the affections which prevail at this period, what bosom can remain insensible? It is indeed the season of regenerated feeling, the season for rekindling, not merely the fire of hospitality in the hall, but the genial flame of charity in the heart. The scene of early love again rises green to memory, beyond the sterile waste of years, and the idea of home, fraught with the fragrance of home-dwelling joys, reanimates the drooping spirit as the Arabian breeze will sometimes waft the freshness of the distant fields to the weary pilgrim of the desert. Stranger and sojourner as I am in the land, though for me no social hearth may blaze, no hospitable roof throw open its doors, nor the warm grasp of friendship welcome me at the threshold. Yet I feel the influence of the season beaming into my soul from the happy looks of those around me. Surely happiness is reflective, like the light of heaven, and every countenance, bright with smiles and glowing with innocent enjoyment, is a mirror transmitting to others the rays of a supreme and ever-shining benevolence. He who can turn churlishly away from contemplating the felicity of his fellow beings and sit down darkling and repining in his loneliness when all around is joyful, may have his moments of strong excitement and selfish gratification, but he wants the genial and social sympathies which constitute the charm of a Merry Christmas. The Stagecoach In the preceding paper, I have made some general observations on the Christmas festivities of England, and am tempted to illustrate them by some anecdotes of a Christmas past in the country, in pursuing which I would most courteously invite my reader to lay aside the austerity of wisdom and to put on that genuine holiday spirit which is tolerant of folly and anxious only for amusement. In the course of a December tour in Yorkshire, I rode for a long distance in one of the public coaches on the day preceding Christmas. The coach was crowded, both inside and out, with passengers who by their talk seemed principally bound to the mansions of relations or friends to eat the Christmas dinner. It was loaded also with hampers of game and baskets and boxes of delicacies and hares hung dangling their long ears about the coachman's box, presents from distant friends for the impending feast. 
I had three fine rosy-cheeked schoolboys for my fellow passengers inside, full of the buxom health and manly spirit which I have observed in the children of this country. They were returning home for the holidays in high glee and promising themselves a world of enjoyment. It was delightful to hear the gigantic plans of pleasure of the little rogues and the impractical feats they were to perform during their six weeks' emancipation from the abhorred thraldom of book, birch, and pedagogue. They were full of anticipations of the meeting with the family and the household, down to the very cat and dog, and of the joy they were to give their little sisters by the presence with which their pockets were cramped at the meeting to which they seemed to look for the greatest impatience was with Bantam, which I found to be a pony, and according to their talk possessed of more virtues than any steed since the days of Bucephalus. How he could trot, how he could run, and then such leaps he would take, there was not a hedge in the whole country that he could not clear. They were under the particular guardianship of the coachman, to whom, whenever an opportunity presented, they addressed a host of questions and pronounced him one of the best fellows in the whole world. Indeed, I could not but notice the more than ordinary air of bustle and importance of the coachman, who wore his hat a little on one side and had a large bunch of Christmas greens stuck in the buttonhole of his coat. He is always a personage full of mighty care and business, but he is particularly so during this season, having so many commissions to execute in consequence of the great interchange of presents. And here, perhaps, it may not be unacceptable to my untraveled readers to have a sketch that may serve as a general representation of this very numerous and important class of functionaries who have addressed a manner, a language, an air peculiar to themselves and prevalent throughout the fraternity, so that wherever an English stagecoachman may be seen, he cannot be mistaken for one of any other craft or mystery. He is commonly a broad, full face, curiously mottled with red, as if the blood had been forced by hard feeling into every vessel of the skin. He is swelled into jolly dimensions by frequent potations of malt liquors, and his bulk is still further increased by a multiplicity of coats in which he is buried like a cauliflower, the upper one reaching to his heels. He wears a broad brimmed, low-crowned hat, a huge roll of colored handkerchief about his neck, knowingly knotted and tucked in at the bosom and has in summertime a large bouquet of flowers in his buttonhole, the present, most probably, of some enamored country lass. His waistcoat is commonly of some bright color, striped, and his small clothes extend far below the knees to meet a pair of jockey boots which reach about halfway up his legs. All this costume is maintained with much precision, 
He has a pride in having his clothes of excellent materials, and notwithstanding the seeming grossness of his appearance, there is still discernible that neatness and propriety of person which is almost inherent in an Englishman. He enjoys great consequence and consideration along the road, has frequent conferences with the village housewives who look upon him as a man of great trust and dependence. He seems to have a good understanding with every bright-eyed country lass. The moment he arrives where the horses are to be changed, he throws down the reins with something of an air and abandons the cattle to the care of the ostler, his duty being merely to drive from one stage to another. When off the box, his hands are thrust in the pockets of his greatcoat, and he rolls about the inn-yard with an air of the most absolute lordliness. Here he is generally surrounded by an admiring throng of ostlers, stable boys, shoe blacks, and those nameless hangers-on, and in fast inns and taverns, and run errands and do all kinds of odd jobs, for the privilege of battening on the drippings of the kitchen and the leakage of the taproom. These all look up to him, as to an oracle, treasure up his camp phrases, echo his opinions about horses and other topics of jockey lore, and above all, endeavor to imitate his air and carriage. Every ragamuffin that has a coat to his back thrusts his hands in the pockets, rolls in his gait, talks slang, and is an embryo coachy. Perhaps it might be owing to the pleasing serenity that reigned in my own mind that I fancied I saw cheerfulness in every countenance throughout the journey. A stagecoach, however, carries animation always with it and puts the world in motion as it whirls along. The horn, sounded at the entrance of a village, produces a general bustle. Some hasten forth to meet friends, some with bundles and bandboxes to secure places, and in the hurry of the moment can hardly take leave of the group that accompanies them. In the meantime, the coachman has a world of small commissions to execute. Sometimes he delivers a hare or pheasant, sometimes jerks a small parcel or newspaper to the door of a public house, and sometimes, with knowing leer and words of sly import, hands to some half-blushing, half-laughing housemaid an odd-shaped billet-doux from some rustic admirer. As the coach rattles through the village, everyone runs to the window, and you have glances on every side of fresh country faces and blooming, giggling girls. At the corners are assembled juntas of village idlers and wise men who take their stations there for the important purpose of seeing company pass. But the sagest nod is generally at the blacksmith, to whom the passing of the coach is an event fruitful of much speculation. The smith, with the horse's heel in his lap, pauses as the vehicle whirls by, 
The cyclops round the anvil suspend their ringing hammers and suffer the iron to grow cool. And the sooty specter in brown paper cap laboring at the bellows leans on the handle for a moment and permits the asthmatic engine to heave a long-drawn sigh while he glares through the murky smoke and sulfurous gleams of the smithy. Perhaps the impending holiday might have given more than usual animation to the country, for it seemed to me as if everybody was in good looks and good spirits. Game, poultry, and other luxuries of the table were in brisk circulation in the villages. The grocers, butchers, and fruiterers' shops were thronged with customers. The housewives were stirring briskly about, putting their dwellings in order, and the glossy branches of holly with their bright red berries began to appear at the windows. The scene brought to mind an old writer's account of Christmas preparations. Now capons and hens, besides turkeys, geese, and ducks, with beef and mutton, must all die, for in twelve days a multitude of people will not be fed with a little. Now plums and spice, sugar and honey, squared among pies and broth, now or never, must music be in tune, for the youth must dance and sing to get them a heat, while the age sit by the fire. The country maid leaves half her market, and must be sent again, as she forgets to pack of cards on Christmas Eve. Great is the contention of holly and ivy, whether master or dame wears the breeches. Dice and cards benefit the butler, and if the cook do not lack wit, he will sweetly lick his fingers. I was roused from this fit of luxurious meditation by a shout from my little traveling companions. They have been looking out of the coach windows for the last few miles, recognizing every tree and cottage as they approached home. And now there was a general burst of joy. There's John, and there's old Carlo, and there's Bantam, cried the happy little rogues, clapping their hands. At the end of a lane, there was an old sober-looking servant in livery waiting for them. He was accompanied by a superannuated pointer and by the redoubtable bantam, a little old rat of a pony with a shaggy mane and long rusty tail who stood dozing quietly by the roadside, little dreaming of the bustling times that awaited him. I was pleased to see the fondness with which the little fellows leaped about the steady old footman and hugged the pointer who wriggled his whole body for joy. But Bantam was the great object of interest. All wanted to mount at once and it was with some difficulty that John arranged that they should ride by turns and the eldest should ride first. Off they set at last, born of the pony with the dog bounding and barking before him, and the others holding John's hands, both talking at once and overpowering him by questions about home 
with school anecdotes. I looked after them with a feeling in which I did not know whether pleasure or melancholy predominated, for I was reminded of those days when, like them, I had neither known care nor sorrow, and a holiday was the summit of earthly felicity. We stopped a few moments afterward to water the horses, and on resuming their route, a turn of the road brought us in sight of a neat country seat. I could just distinguish the forms of a lady and two young girls in the portico, and I saw my little comrades with Bantam, Carlo, and old John trooping along the carriage road. I leaned out of the coach window in hopes of witnessing the happy meeting, but a grove of trees shut it from my sight. In the evening we reached a village where I had determined to pass the night. As we drove into the great gateway of the inn, I saw on one side the light of a rousing kitchen fire beaming through the window. I entered and admired for the hundredth time that picture of convenience, neatness, and broad, honest enjoyment, the kitchen of the English inn. It was of spacious dimensions, hung around with copper and tin vessels highly polished, and decorated here and there with a Christmas green. Hams, tongues, and flitches of bacon were suspended from the ceiling. A smoke jack made its ceaseless clanking beside the fireplace, and a clock ticked in one corner. A well-sourced deal table extended along one side of the kitchen, with a cold round of beef and other hearty viands upon it over which two foaming tankards of ale seemed mounting guard. Travelers of inferior order were preparing to attack the stout repast, while others sat smoking and gossiping over their ale on two high-backed oaken seats beside the fire. Trim housemaids were hurrying backwards and forwards under the directions of a fresh, bustling landlady but still seizing an occasional moment to exchange a flippant word and have a rallying laugh with the group round the fire. The scene completely realized poor Robin's humble idea of the comforts of midwinter. Now trees, their leafy hats to bear, to reverence winter's silver hair. A handsome hostess, merry host, a pot of ale now and a toast. Tobacco and a good coal fire are things this season doth require. I had not been long at the inn when a post-chaise drove up to the door. A young gentleman stepped out, and by the light of the lamps I caught a glimpse of a countenance which I thought I knew. I moved forward to get a nearer view when his eye caught mine. I was not mistaken. It was Frank Bracebridge, a sprightly, good-humored young fellow with whom I had once traveled on the continent. Our meeting was extremely cordial, for the countenance of an old fellow traveler always brings up the recollection of a thousand pleasant scenes, odd adventures, and excellent jokes. 
to discuss all these in a transient interview in an inn was impossible. And finding that I was not pressed for time and was merely making a tour of observation, he insisted that I should give him a day or two at his father's country seat to which he was going to pass the holidays and which lay at a few miles distance. It is better than eating a solitary Christmas dinner at an inn, said he, and I can assure you of a hearty welcome in something of the old-fashioned style. His reasoning was cogent, and I must confess the preparation I had seen for universal festivity and social enjoyment had made me feel a little impatient of my loneliness. I closed, therefore, at once with his invitation. The chase drove up to the door, and in a few moments I was on my way to the family mansion of the Brace Bridges. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.